uh, Jesus is no fairy tale is what we're going to look at. Uh, now, as Christians, if you're Christian here, you know that's true. You know that's true. You know it's true because Colin tells you. Let's have a look. Jesus is no fairy tale. Let's listen. over there on that high note Colin said end of sermon I can sit down (laughs) but if someone asks you how do you know that Jesus is real would you refer them to Colin or would you just say because or would you say because the Bible says so or Jesus that's the answer Um, I think in our sceptical world today uh, we need to be ready to uh, say something a bit more than that. So this morning I'm going to answer this question and make the statement that Colin made that Jesus is no fairy tale and give you some evidence to look at so that when you're asked the question you can say uh, Jesus is real. Let me tell you why. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to understand this morning why uh, your son is a very real person. He lived on our earth and he died and he rose again help us to understand your word and see what it says to us amen now some people say that jesus is real in the sense that uh, he exists for those who want him to exist a bit like santa claus some say jesus is a legend like king arthur or robin hood you know you may believe it but maybe maybe it's just not true or jesus is an enlightened being Uh, For some years, Jesus was thought to be an alien who came to visit us and then left again. Or Jesus is a fairy tale for grown-ups. It's our crutch. It's the thing we want to believe in, and so it's true for us. Now, the attacks on the nature of Jesus uh, are fairly recent, uh, but particularly in the media, they've come within the last 15 or so years. And I think it's mainly due to uh, this. I haven't read it, but I'm sure some of you had. And uh, when this book came out some time ago, uh, on a good Friday, if you went home from church, you could watch a lovely documentary on the life of Jesus. And there'd be a blue-eyed, blonde-haired Jesus speaking in perfect English. After the Da Vinci Code, uh, you would have found that those sorts of films weren't there anymore. Rather, you'd get documentaries saying, is Jesus real? Was Jesus married to Mary Magdalene? Uh, Jesus' bones have been found and things like that. We became very sceptical in the media and uh, as we watched our screens, intrigue invaded us. Scholars had actually been grappling the ideas for some years, for about 100 years actually. Up until that time, everyone believed that uh, Jesus was a real historical person, but then some started to question that and, of course, there were PhD theses in... uh, saying that Jesus wasn't real and you could also make a bit of money on the speaking circuits. 
When I was teaching a religious education at school, the questions changed over the 20 or so years I was teaching. Towards the end of my teaching career, the, teaching, the questions were no longer on theology, about Jesus being God. The questions were more about uh, uh, things like, who wrote the New Testament? How long was it between when Jesus died and the first written documents? And how do we know the story didn't change during that time? Like Chinese whispers. One person passed it on to the other and they just changed the story. Uh, is there any evidence outside the Bible? Isn't it all biased if all the evidence just comes from four people, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John? Well, they're great questions and worth answering, but we've got an AGM so, coming up. And we can't do justice to them all, but I do have a couple of books that I'd recommend if you want to uh, look. I notice there's one up the back. This one's The Case for the Real Jesus. Uh, up the back is The Case for Christ, which covers the same sort of territory, and anything by John Dixon. Uh, this one's The Christ Files, but he's written a number of other books that'll tell you the sorts of things that I want to talk to you this morning. A couple of points I want to make before we jump in, uh, because I think it's good to explain where we're coming from. Uh, number one, uh, Christianity, unlike most of the other major religions, uh, invites this type of questioning about its reliability. Uh, if you look, for example, at uh, Hinduism, uh, their scriptures focus on the believer's merger with the universal life force, Brahman, uh, with Islam. It centres on the nature and practice of submission to Allah. Our Buddhists emphasise the extinguishment of the self and the extinguishment of suffering. But the New Testament revolves around a series of events that took place in Palestine over a period of 33 years. It lays itself open to historical criticism. It invites these type of questions. So we can ask questions about the New Testament feeling confident that there will be answers there. Second thing I want to say is that regardless of their religious beliefs, most scholars of any repute would not doubt that the New Testament uh, is a historical, reliable source. Nor would they doubt that Jesus existed as a real person. If you went to the library at Macquarie University, you'd find uh, in the ancient history section more books on Jesus than you would on Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar combined. So it's, it's an historical reliable uh, testament that uh, there are books written by people who are studying this area and are keen to find out truth. Third thing I want to say before we really start is we have to remember we're dealing with historical proof. If you're after scientific proof, you'll get some, but you won't get all the answers. Historical proof is a little bit like uh, legal evidence where we talk about beyond reasonable doubt. So with this kind of evidence... Uh, you'd see that there's so much support for this particular reading or this particular source that it would be unreasonable to doubt that it's true. That's the way it works. You look at, you look at the majority of what people think, you look at the minority, if the majority far outweighs the minority, then you'd say it's reasonable to say that that is true. Well, with all this in mind, let's jump in. Let's have a history lesson. Some say you can't believe the Bible... Uh, because all the information just comes from the source of the New Testament. And those guys got together and they made it up. Well, that's just not true. Let me be blunt. It's just not true. 60 AD, a Roman historian called Tacitus recorded that a major fire broke out in Rome. 
Christians were blamed for starting the fire. And so Tacitus wrote to his readers where Christians came from. Let's have a look. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, oh, sorry, that's not the one. Let me go on. Christians derived their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of the Emperor Tiberius had been executed by a sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The deadly superstition thus checked for the moment broke out afresh, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome. Well, there you are. Here is an historian who's a pagan historian talking about uh, someone who executed in the time of Pontius Pilate, and we know that that person uh, was Jesus. He's called the Christ there. Meanwhile, in Bithynia, that's uh, in modern Turkey, about 40 years later, a contemporary of Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, not to be confused with Pliny the Older, or Luke the Stout, or Glenn the Wise, or Alan the Not-So-Wise. This was Pliny the Younger, not the Elder. He wrote to the Roman Emperor Trajan, asking advice on how to deal with a new sect called Christians. And this is what he wrote. The sum of their guilt or error was no more than the following. They had met regularly before dawn on a determined day and sung a hymn to Christ as to a God. They also took an oath, not for any crime, but to keep them from theft, robbery, adultery, and not to break any promise. They sound like a pretty good group, don't they? But notice they sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. Again, written by a pagan author about the person we know as Jesus. Then there's Josephus. He wasn't a pagan, he was a Jew. He was a first century Jewish aristocrat, military general and historian. He managed to write a whole history of the Jewish people. <clears throat> and uh, he writes about uh, the time of Pontius Pilate and his treatment of a Jewish teacher. Let's have a quick look. At this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people, and when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who he had loved him previously did not cease to do so. Wow. Pretty amazing, isn't it? He actually wrote a little bit more. And so Ananus, the high priest, convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others, and delivered them up to be stoned. Well, these sources are quite amazing. What's so important about them? Well, if you combine them all together, you find out quite an amazing thing. All this information you see before you, you could find out about Jesus outside of the New Testament and from writers who had uh, nothing that they wanted to portray about Jesus that was good. They weren't biased towards him. They were just recording history. And notice the information we get there. One of the writers we didn't mention also mentions a time when uh, during the reign of Pontius Pilate, there was a, um, an eclipse. We can equate that with the darkness at the cross. So little incidental things like that all help to, to build this picture of who Jesus really was. Well, what about the New Testament? What about that as a source? Uh, the life of Jesus, 
Well, when we come to the New Testament, we're overwhelmed with the richness of the evidence. And I want to try to explain this to you. When you're looking at ancient history, you're not dealing with originals. All the originals have been lost. So what's important to see if something's true is the number of copies you have of the original and the time gap between the original and the first available copy. The smaller the time gap and the more copies, the better it is to say this source is reliable. I'll just give you a quick look at this source here. Remember the smaller the time gap and the number of copies. As you go down there, you can see the time gap for some of the things, some of the people we've talked about, and uh, Caesar there. Um, first copy, 900 AD, uh, time gap of 1,000 years. We have seven manuscripts. As you wind your way down there, you come to the New Testament. The earliest fragment we have is from about AD 125. That might have been pushed earlier since this uh, little uh, map was written. Uh, the time gap, 25 to 50 years. And look at the number of copies, 24,000. Scholars say it's more like 25 to 30,000 now. Full copies of the New Testament. Now, that's, that's just amazing to think we have that kind of information. The New Testament is not just one source either. It's not like, um, here's the one source we've got and let's read it as, as one particular thing. These are all different sources. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the letters, uh, the book of Acts are all different sources that have been floating around and then put together sometime later. Uh, for example, Paul's letters were written between 48 and 64 AD. That's pretty close to the time of Jesus. He writes to Christians who knew the story of Jesus well, so he doesn't retell the story. Uh, he mentions occasionally um, some details about Jesus' life, so he mentions the fact that, of course, he died and rose again. He mentions the name of Jesus' brother. He mentions the Last Supper. He mentions Jesus' views on marriage, some things like that. But what historians get excited about with Paul is this little statement here in 1 Corinthians because this comes from a creed that was circulating well before Paul wrote his letter. Some historians take this creed back to about 35 AD, just a couple of years after Jesus died. This was being said by Christians as they met together. It may have even been written down. Paul writes, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Jesus died and there was a strong tradition of people learning and passing things on so that uh, eventually when it, the disciples were getting pretty old and they decided to write things down, they were writing not things that they thought that they'd heard, they were writing things that people had memorised and passed on to them. Christians were well schooled in the stories of Jesus before they were written down by the gospel writers. So when we come to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, one of the questions we ask is, well, why were there four gospels? If they're all saying the same thing, why do we need four? Did they all get together and, and sort of try to, to uh, make a hoax so that they could 
inform us about Jesus, but it's just not true. Is it the biggest hoax in history? Well, no, because they were written at different times and different places. Let's go to Mark's Gospel, for example. Mark was written about 64 AD, again, no, about 30 years after Jesus' death. He writes down the record of Jesus' life as dictated by the Apostle Peter. And Peter was very close to Jesus, so we're getting eyewitness evidence. When Matthew and Luke wrote down their Gospels, they appear to have copied large chunks of Mark. So if you read Matthew and Luke, you'll see a lot of Mark in there, sometimes word for word. And a lot of material found in Matthew and Luke is not found in Mark. Now historians believe that they actually used other sources that were floating around before they wrote their Gospels down. So we've got Mark, we've got Matthew and Luke copying bits of Mark, but also getting their information from what uh, historians call a source called Quell or Q. Matthew gets some information from a source called M and Luke from a source called L. John gets his information from another source where it seems that someone has written down about the miracles of Jesus and that source is called SQ. Now this might be fairly confusing. You're thinking, hey, I just thought we had Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. What's all this talk about sources and other writings that we haven't got? Well, let me put your minds at rest because when Luke wrote his gospel, this is what he had to say. This is the beginning of Luke's gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you. So Luke's saying publicly, I used other sources. We don't have those sources now. But what we do have are the Gospels that have been written down using those widely reliable sources. Well, why have I spent 10 minutes giving a history lesson? Because, because is not a good enough answer to our sceptical world. We need to have a reason for why we believe in what we believe. And I think we're on great ground, very solid ground, to say the New Testament is based on historical facts. The letters and the texts and the gospel should be treated uh, as such and not dismissed offhand as fairy tales or people being ignorant or being misinformed. If our information about the Bible comes from films we've watched, we need to question people and say, well, where did you get your information? Let me show you some sources and see where it really comes from. There's overwhelming evidence, both inside and outside the New Testament, and archaeological evidence as well, that Jesus lived and died. But I think the more important question for us this morning is whether Jesus died and lived. So let's go to our Bibles. Could you turn with me, please, to John chapter 20? Uh, that lesson that was read for us at the end by Graham. John chapter 20, and that section about doubting Thomas. It says in that section, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Disciples had seen Jesus. They told Thomas. Thomas didn't believe. Well, before we look at the text, let's, let's look at Thomas for a minute. What do we know about him? 
Well, John actually gives us two occasions which Thomas has mentioned beforehand. And I think they lay the context for what Thomas is about to do now. In chapter 11, uh, the story of Lazarus, uh, Jesus hears that his friend is ill and he delays a while before he goes to see him. But he has to go to Judea to a place near Jerusalem to heal him and to raise him from the dead. And uh, the disciples say to Jesus, don't go. It's going to be a bad place for you. You know your enemies are there. Please don't go. Uh, Jesus is adamant that he's going. Thomas says, if that's what you want, we'll go with you because we're ready to die as well. See, what, see how he says that? If you go, I don't want to be without you. I want to die with you. He can't bear to be without Jesus. We meet Thomas again in chapter 14 of John's Gospel. And talking to his disciples, Jesus tells them that he's going to a place that has many rooms and he's going to prepare a place for them. Uh, And he says, you know the way. Guess who says, no, it's Thomas again. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus replies with those famous words, and you can tell me what they are, I am truth and the life that's right so here we see Thomas again once again not bearing the thought that Jesus can leave them he wants the position clear he wants the map spelled out he wants the route in front of him Jesus words are not enough for this man he wants more so in the light of all this it's interesting isn't it that he's the one who's missing when Jesus uh, appears to the disciples in that upper room Luke records the same incident in his gospel. He doesn't mention Thomas, but he does say the other disciples needed some convincing. Jesus showed them his hands and his side. He even ate a fish in front of them so they could see he was, he was a real person that was there, not just a ghost. How ironic that if anyone who needed this kind of uh, treatment, this kind of information and this kind of assurance wasn't there, It was Thomas who was missing. Jesus had said to the gathered disciples, peace be with you, but for Thomas there was no peace. Just anxious tension as he waited. He didn't believe the disciples' testimony. He was willing to believe only if he carried out some scientific tests. He wanted to see, touch, smell, everything about Jesus to know that it was real. He wanted to carry out the tests. The sceptics of our world would applaud him. This is a type of proof that they need. Wouldn't it be great if God could wave to us through the clouds every morning? Hello, have a nice day. Do you want fries with that this morning? But God is not like that. He has evidence from reliable eyewitnesses. But for Thomas, this is not enough. Thomas is at the crossroads. Before him lies a path of doubt or the path of faith. And Jesus is under no obligation to meet Thomas's needs, nor is he under any obligation to meet our needs when we, when we question whether he's real or not. He doesn't have to come down and show us. But Jesus, who for three years has been this disciple's loving master, meets him in his time of doubt and struggle. So it's one week later, it's the same place. All the disciples are there, plus one, and Jesus appears. To Thomas's statement one week earlier, I will not believe it, 
Jesus replies, stop doubting and believe. Does Thomas carry out any of his tests? Well, the gospel writers indicate no. They don't tell us that he actually touched him and put his hand in his side and so on. What they do tell us is that he falls to his knees and he does what no Orthodox Jew would ever dare dream of doing. He says to the one before him, my Lord and my God. You see, Jesus is far more than an historical figure, a teacher and a healer. He is God himself, the risen saviour, who is to be worshipped and glorified. There's nothing wrong with Thomas's confession, but there is something wrong with the way he arrived at it. And Jesus gently chastises his friend and says, faith which results from seeing is good, but faith which results from hearing is even better. We don't have Jesus' physical presence with us today, but what we do have are accurate writings about him that have been preserved through the generations. Peter, later on in one of his letters, says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Jesus is no fairy tale. The evidence is in the reliable eyewitnesses. And might you know the glorious joy of knowing Jesus if you've never known that before. If you do know that, might you continue to know and grow in the love of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Thomas. We thank you for his scepticism and you meeting him in his hour of need. Father, we thank you for his magnificent statement that you are indeed his Lord and God. May we all fall to our feet and acknowledge you for who you are. And we thank you for dying for us and rising again to give us new life and sins forgiven. Amen. Thanks, Stuart. It's always uh, great to be reminded of those, uh, the reality and the facts of Jesus. Jesus is real, and uh, he is a reality that confronts us and I believe uh, demands attention and a decision. And uh, so thanks again, Stuart, for those uh, very timely reminders that Jesus is not a fairy tale. Ah, it's here. In this Q&A. You, you want to do Q&A? Oh, lucky you. <laughs> okay, here's your chance to ask Stuart some great questions. Any questions up here? No. <laughs> Terry. There is uh, one passage that Jesus gives the Spirit to the disciples and then he says, uh, if you forgive someone, their sins are forgiven. If you don't, their sins are not forgiven. I always thought the aim was we forgive all the time. We wouldn't be unforgiving. So I just want 
to know what that verse really means. Uh, that wasn't in my brief for um, what I was doing this morning, so I'd, I'd have to go back and do a bit of research on that one, Terry. Okay. Sorry. Uh, I think the... Uh, if I can have a go at it. <laughs> uh, partly the answer to that is uh, when people believe and uh, put their faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And so as the uh, disciples proclaim the gospel, proclaim the good news, and people believe, their sins are forgiven. So it's in that sort of context that their sins are forgiven. If they don't believe, then their sins aren't forgiven. Yeah? Thanks. Um, So how... The evidence is pretty clear what you're saying, but how do you deliver that to a, a society that's um, not only sceptical but post-truth? They don't seem to care about yeah. the truth. Well, uh, yeah, I know it's hard. Well, I think if someone says to you, uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no proof that Jesus is alive, all we can do is take them to what you do know and, and give them some, um, some information that is true and they can do with that what they like. I mean, the, the question of history is how do you know anything's true in history? And if you question history, then there's no past and you're only living for the present. So I used to say to the kids at school, how do you know that um, uh, an historical figure existed in the past? And say someone just beyond their lifetime and they'd tell me, oh, got, we've got photos, we've got written evidence, we've got TV documentaries. Then you'd go back a little bit in the past and what, what was the evidence for, say, Joan of Arc? How did you know that? So you've just got to look at the evidence that's available and use what's there. Um, if people are in this post-modern era where they don't want to know what truth is, well, yeah, they're not going to not going to want to find out. One over there. Um, so when, the, when Jesus rose from the dead, um, he saw Mary and said to her, but don't touch me because I haven't ascended yet. Yeah. And then he spent a few weeks with them and said, look at my side. And you said he ate a fish. And so he was fully manned. Yep. Was he rubbing shoulders with them? And like, uh, Sorry, can you uh, repeat the question? I think the question is, how do they know? Like, it, it was God. It was God that was there with them. But it wasn't God as they knew him. Yes. And he, they weren't allowed to touch him because he hadn't ascended to the Father. Yes. That's right. Well, it was in his resurrection body, which is like ours, but different. Like his, like his former body, but different. So it gives us a hint of our resurrection bodies. will be recognisable, but it might take a little while to recognise us because it's going to be something glorious. Mm. Um, and uh, Jesus said to Mary, don't touch me because I haven't, gone to my, haven't ascended to my father yet. Um, but he said to Thomas, touch me. Touch me. But I don't know if Thomas did. And I'm not sure if the other disciples did either. We're not told that they did. But Jesus, yeah, if Thomas had wanted to, I guess that would have happened. Now, look, I've got all these answers to questions about the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, <laughs> and all these other hard ones. <laughs> Stop asking me questions about the Bible. <laughs> Catch me later. <laughs> <laughs>